Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, which is our our goal today, the main idea is that there is a just judgment with righteous character in the perfect plan of God. And that it will lead us to passionate, enthusiastic worship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the first five verses, we have praise to God for his salvation. We give glory to God for his bride in verses 6 through 8. And then we worship God for the witness of Jesus in verses 9 and 10. Verse 1 tells us, as we get rocking and rolling, After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Part of Bible study interpretation is that you look for these words that are connecting statements. Words like after these things, which make us ask after what things? After chapters 17 and 18. Chapter 17 and 18, we see the fall of Babylon. Babylon is a picture of the world and all of its wickedness and its system of idolatry and adultery and fornication and false hope in luxury and materialism. And in chapter 17, we see the fall of the religious system of Babylon that the Antichrist will set up in the end times. And in chapter 18, we see the fall of the economic system of Babylon that was full of luxury, sensuality, trade was good, business was booming, but in one day, it fell lickety split by the power of God. He destroyed wicked Babylon. You can read about it in your own, just as you might scan back in chapter 18, verse two, chapter 18, verse eight, chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. And you see the weeping and wailing of the merchants and the Kings who had, had joined themselves to wicked Babylon and prospered through her idolatry and through her sensuality. So after these things, John the Revelator says, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. This is nothing new. We are seeing all sorts of shouts and cries and exaltations in the book of Revelation. There's all kinds of drama and excitement happening in the throne room and in the presence of God. And here we see it's a loud cry of a multitude. And in the Greek, it speaks of of the common people. Okay, so uh, just like in the Gospels, there's multitudes that would follow Jesus. Those were great crowds of the common folk. And here we see in the presence of God in heaven, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, I believe this is you and me right here. You can almost hear your own voice shouting out the word, Alleluia! And I'm kind of shouting it out because there's an exclamation point there, which means you're exclaiming it, okay? Alleluia! Or hallelujah. Four times in this little section, in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6, we see this great word, hallelujah. In fact, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, have been called the hallelujah chorus of heaven. Or heaven's hallelujah chorus. If you were here last week, uh, you might have gotten to meet my dear friend and one of my deep, uh, dear pastors in my life, uh, Rob Verdine. Okay, so he spoke at the men's muster, and then he came and he shared here on Sunday. And I've known Rob since I was uh, 14 years old. Uh, I've been to Hungary with him twice. I've been to Israel with him four times. I've traveled all over with him. But when I was 19 years old, I went to Hungary with him. And we were in Budapest, and we were doing uh, street outreach among uh, the train stations. And we'd set up big systems, and we'd do dance parties, you know, or sorts of like gospel mimery, you know. And we'd preach the gospel. People were getting saved. And I remember there was a McDonald's nearby. kind of went up out of the train station, and there was a McDonald's, and the team would kind of Go to the McDonald's for um, delicious food and beverages, of course. 90 million served daily. Or billion, I don't know what it is. Are there even 90 billion? There's not 90 billion people on the earth. You do the math. Okay. 
total tangent. I think we were talking about McDonald's. Uh, and we would go get refreshments there in, in the Mickey D's. And uh, I remember this so well. Rob took a little break and went to the McDonald's and uh, went into the bathroom. Now, Rob, back in the late 90s, early 1000s, <clears throat> used to sport a fanny pack, okay? And in the fanny pack, he had all of the team's money for traveling. There was something like probably 30 of us on this trip, and he just had stacks of cash in this fanny pack. And he's in the bathroom uh, using the restroom when the lights go off in the bathroom. And right away, he's like, oh, no, someone is coming to steal this team's money. And all of a sudden, someone's grabbing the door of the stall and begins shaking it and shouting out and crying out, okay, it's all I know in Hungarian, okay? It's actually a Bible verse, but I'm sure that's what the guy was yelling. Okay? He's shaking the bathroom stalls, and Rob is terrified. You know, it flashes through his mind. 30 people on the team, no money. We're here for two more weeks. What am I going to do? And all he could do is just stand up. Alleluia. Alleluia. And if you know Rob, it was. Alleluia. Does the whole song, okay? And the guy runs out the door, and the light turns on, and. He walks out, everyone's talking. Hey, Rob, man, it was crazy. The lights of the restaurant went out, the deep fryers went off. You know, uh, turns out it was just a glitch in the system, and Rob realized that no one was, there was a guy in the stall next to him who was scared of the dark and was trying to get out. <laughs> you know? <clears throat> so, he came back. Started distributing the cash to everybody. I think wisdom would be it's not all in one basket. Okay. In Hebrew, alleluia comes from two words, hallel and yah, which means praise to Yahweh or praise God, praise the Lord. In the Psalms, hallelujah is used 22 times. Uh, but you might find it interesting that this is the only place in the New Testament where we see Alleluia or Hallelujah. Alleluia is the Greek form of the Hebrew Hallelujah. Nowhere else in the New Testament, but here in Revelation 19, 1 through 10, the Alleluia chorus of heaven. And it is incredible as you do some world traveling, as you do missions, and you find yourself in other churches. Uh, worshiping with people in different languages. It's amazing because they're singing songs in their language and you know the melody and you'll say, oh, I know what they're singing right here. And so you sing in English because you know the melody and they sing in Hungarian or Brazilian, uh, Portuguese or whatever it might be, Nepali. And, and sometimes you can jive together even though you don't even speak the same language. But I'll tell you one word that always comes home. Uh, at these worship times, when it comes up on a screen or in the, in the hymnal or whatever it is, when there's hallelujah, everybody is shouting it out. And everyone is so excited because we don't know much. No hablo hungariano, okay? But we know, praise God, we know hallelujah. In 1741, George Frederick Handel wrote the famous hymn, Messiah. It's the most famous oration of what we know as the Hallelujah Chorus, okay? It's the song that basically goes, Alleluia, 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 for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, okay? And I was like, Adam, can we do that, man? Is there a way with the left-handed Larave that we could do the Hallelujah Chorus, you know? It is so technical, right? I'm like, I can't even do this song. It is, it's so beautiful. You got to look it up. Because we all know it, but when you listen to the words, it's taken from Revelation chapter 19. And the tradition around the world is when uh, the messianic hallelujah course begins, the congregation will stand and remain standing until the end of the song. But in Revelation, we're going to see in verse 4 that everyone bows down as this song is being sung. I'm a fan of Mr. Bean. 
Okay. Probably can never tell. And there's a Mr. Bean episode where he goes to church, probably for the first time in a long time, right? He drives his little car, and he's in the war with the blue three-wheeler vehicle, you know, or whatever. And he gets into church, and he's got the hymnal, and he's sitting in the front row, and he's being rude, and he's just sticking out like a sore thumb, you know. And they're singing Alleluia Chorus, and he can't, he doesn't know any of the words to the verses, right? Watermelon can but then when everybody sings, Alleluia, 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 okay? And so as we sing, closing up, we're going to shout it out together, Alleluia, Hallelujah. Whether you want to speak Greek or Hebrew today, you pick. We're a bilingual congregation. <clears throat> In response to those who love Jesus and worship the Lamb, what we see in these 10 verses is nothing less than unabated, unhindered, enthusiastic worship of God. Charles Spurgeon said, We ought not to worship God in a half-hearted sort of way, as if it were now our duty to bless God. But we feel it to be a very weary business. And we would get through it as quickly as we could and have just be done with it. And the sooner the better. No, no, Spurgeon says, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Come, my heart, wake up and summon all the powers which wait upon thee. Mechanical worship is easy, but worthless. Come, rouse yourself, my brother. Rouse thyself, O mine own soul, Spurgeon said. Their worship in chapter 19, we're going to see verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, and even verse 5, praise our God, is anything but quiet. It's anything but reserved. It's loud and it's enthusiastic. And verse 1 continues on, salvation and glory and honor belong to the Lord our God. Because he is the God of deliverance, my friends. He is the God of splendor like none other. He's the God of praise and honor and value and high price. He is the God of ability. He is the God of strength. Anselm of Canterbury considers hallelujah to be an angelic word, which cannot be fully reproduced in any other language. We can say praise the Lord, but it doesn't measure up to the Hebrew of hallelujah. And I think everyone knows that when they say it. Augustine had the feeling that hallelujah embodies all the blessedness of heaven. In verse 2, they say, Alleluia, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he's judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of the servants shed by her. We've read this phrase before as we've gone through the great tribulation period. God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world in ways that are so severe that they almost seem unjust and so the bible itself has to remind us that in all of god's judgments he is just in them there's no injustice he is true and right and fair and honorable and proper and innocent in the way that he judges sin you see it in revelation 15 3 you see it in revelation 16 7 And yet our hearts kind of war against the judgment of God against sinners of this world. And so we create all kinds of strange doctrines like annihilationalism, which believes that people who don't believe in Christ won't go to hell. They'll just kind of cease to exist. Maybe like a Buddhist nirvana. Uh, Or we created something such as universalism that says in the end, everybody will be saved. Because it is unjust and wicked for God to destroy anything in this world. And we have a sort of borrowed these annihilationism and universalism theologies from Buddhism, from Mormonism, from Jehovah's Witnessism, from all of these different isms that we would say from the scripture are cults. They are not believers in the Jesus of the Holy Scripture that we have in front of us. And so we just kind of 
wink at our sin and we kind of just suppress God's hot displeasure and wrath that burns against sin, that burns against rebellion against him. And we have to just throw away so many scriptures that talk about the judgment of God. And so they would say in the book of Revelation in heaven that, God, you are just and true when you judge Babylon. When you have judged that great harlot we've known her to be from Revelation chapter 17. She was one who was a corrupter. She was one who brought destruction. She was the one that destroyed is what the Greek for corrupt means. God is destroying the destroyer. He's actually saving his creation in his judgment. The word corrupt from verse 2 means harming and depraving and spoiling things and ruining things. And so as God judges rightly the one who is corrupting and ruining and destroying and harming things, he is actually bringing about the greater good. Just as farmers have to purge their field before their next crop by burning the chaff, by burning away the unprofitable weeds and thorn bushes so that a good yield can be brought about next time around. It wasn't the Lord who brought the ruin on the earth. It was a moral people living on the earth, rebelling against God. And he is a God of vengeance, as he said. Verse 2 says, he's avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. God judges those that have made martyrs out of Christians. In chapter 6, there's a group of martyrs under the altar of God in heaven, and they cry out, Oh God, how long until you avenge our blood shed on the earth? And the Lord said, Just rest there under the altar for a while. Vengeance will come, but it's not yet. We're in Revelation chapter 19, guys. We're not in chapter 6 anymore. Vengeance has come. And the blood of the martyrs has been vindicated. In verse 3, again, this multitude of common folk. Does that describe you? Kind of describes me. Like putting my shirt on today. I'm like, I can't remember when this was watched last. And my sleeves don't go all the way down my wrists. So maybe if I roll them up, no one will notice. And there literally is a spot right here. And maybe a little, I was like, well, got to get to church. Don't have time to change. Don't get more common. All right. Anyone here common? You can totally sympathize? No, nope, some of you are pretty clean pressed today. I apologize if you ironed your shirt. Um, I don't mean to stumble you. Okay. But the common folk are just like, I need salvation. I mean, look at me. Okay. Hallelujah. Verse 3. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Again, again, with the hallelujah stuff, a sort of heavenly encore heightens immeasurably the dramatic quality of the scene one commentary puts it's an encore 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 hallelujah so exciting don't you think because babylon the harlot the idolatrous religious system set up by the devil the antichrist and his false prophet is burning she got nothing the economic luxurious sensuous wicked economic system that the antichrist set up to bring glory to the devil is burning it's got nothing might have taken something like five years for nazi germany to fall in the hands of the allies but it was one day for god to just squash babylon like a bug and we say hallelujah to that her smoke rises up forever and ever spurgeon went on to say all christian duties should be done joyfully but especially the work of praising the lord I have been in congregations where the tune was Dolores. I had to look up what that means. It means marked by misery and grief. Oh, just get out of here already. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Seriously, though. Okay. It was Dolores to the very last degree, where the time was so dreadfully slow that the pastor had to promise the church would be done by noon. And one wondered whether they would ever be able to sing through the psalm. Spurgeon says, to use Watts' expression, eternity would not be too short from them to get through it. And altogether, the spirit of the people has seemed to be so damp 
so heavy, so dead, that we might have supposed that they were met to prepare their minds for a hanging rather than for the blessing of the ever-gracious God. So this is our second of four alleluias in verse 3. Babylon will be smoldering in torment as the remains of her destruction smoke for quite some time. How long? Chapter 14 says it. Chapter 18 says it. That this long smoldering of torment towards the wicked system of Satan and those therein will be forever. Takes you back to the sandlot if you've ever seen it. Right? And just in case you might throw in universalism or annihilationism, there's a dot, dot, dot. And ever. Okay? Don't sidestep, water down the word of God, my friends. Like it or leave it. The word of God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Or if I may simplify, the word of God says it. Don't matter if you believe it. That settles it. All right? Her smoke rises up forever and how long ever. And we can say hallelujah because this is Satan and his cronies here. You're on Satan's team. Choose sides now. Okay. John Piper is right when he says, if God turned a deaf ear to sin and evil and injustice and suffering in this world, he would not be true. He would certainly not be just. God here is rightfully and wholeheartedly praised for his justice. And his justice is prefaced with an alleluia. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. All right, good job, guys. This last week at the muster, we learned from Pastor Rob about the different postures that we have in prayer. That we stand in prayer. We might lift our hands in prayer. We lift our eyes in prayer. We lift our face in prayer. We might bow down in prayer or sit in prayer. Fall on our face in prayer. There's various postures as we're crying out to the Lord and worshiping Him. And even at our home group, we just challenge each other and just we're like, guys, let's just bust out of the mold that we've been in that's just like, you know, whatever. Maybe you only stand, then sit. Maybe you only sit, then kneel. Get on your face. Lay down all the way. We lift you high and bow down low. How high can you be? How low can I go? Matt Redman wrote. I'll tell you how low I was this morning praying before church today. I was down all the way in that I could in the carpet. Had a little carpet fiber in my mouth. Remembering we've been in this house for 10 years and a dog barfed right in this general area. Let me time to lift up just a little. Okay. It's like, how low can you get in your worship and adoration for Jesus? And who are these people saying this anyway? Well, we got the 24 elders who we described back in the throne room scene of chapter 4 and chapter 5. I believe it's a picture of representation of the church in heaven right after the rapture. I believe just as elders are the representation of the church, uh, so as too, these elders are representing the church raptured in heaven. Uh, and they are with the four living creatures that we also saw in heaven in those throne room scenes. These four living creatures are special angelic creatures made by God specifically to be worshiping in his presence. And both the elders and the creatures fall down and cry out, Amen which means truly, truly, which means here, here, which means we wholeheartedly agree. And with that, we're going to shout out the third, Alleluia, Alleluia, right? The Hallelujah Chorus of Heaven. Verse 5, then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. So the voice is coming from the throne. We don't know who this is. Angels. Maybe it's one of the four living creatures. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's one of you. You're just, oh, man, here I am in heaven. I'm just doing things. And you just do one of those hallelujahs that's outside of everyone else's. And you just shout. I mean, you might be mentioned right here. We don't know. But mind your place. I'm kidding. Shout it out. Hallelujah. All right. 
In fact, it's interesting that this voice that comes from the throne is saying, praise our God, which is another way of saying, hallelujah, right? That's basically what he's saying there. All you his servants, all those who are douloses in the Greek. If you're reading the Bible reading plan, it wasn't long ago that we just read about the servant who serves his master and is treated so well by his master. He's a slave and his time for freedom has come, but he loves his master so much that he willingly says, you know what? I want to serve you for the rest of my life willingly, not by compulsion. And so that what they would do is they would bring the servant before the elders. They would bring him to a doorpost of a house and they would pierce his ear with an awl or with a wooden awl. And it would be a sign to everyone that he has willingly chosen to be a bond servant of his master for the rest of his life because he loves his master so much. And so when we are called servants, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing because we have found our master to be so worthy of everything we can ever offer with our whole lives. We want to be his forever. And so we can hallelujah anyone who's got the all in their ears, anyone that fears him or worships him with reverence, whether you're small or great, whether you're little and unimportant or you're large and loud and surprisingly unimportant in your largeness. Everyone can praise the Lord. Corporate worship is what we see happening here. Corporate worship, when the church is gathering together to make much of Jesus together. Piper said, corporate worship is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. In his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God, and the beauty of God, and the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of current Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds in our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of the world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive of Babylon anymore. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which is destroyed. Does corporate worship sound important? Got news for you. It's what you're going to be doing forever and ever and ever. If you don't like it now, you're not going to like it then. Start investing in corporate worship and letting the Lord tune your heart to love the gathering together with the saints, not just on Sundays, but all throughout the week, because this is going to be our life forever and ever, being together and worshiping Jesus. Verse 6, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thunderings, thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. This is where the Alleluia song comes in. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Alleluia, Alleluia. You guys are just... Let's move on to verse 7, I guess, if you want to. Real quick, going back. What are they doing? They're saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. In the Greek, Kyrios, Theos, Pantocrator. That God is king and is in control completely. The previous Hallelujahs point back to the destruction of Babylon in chapter 18, but the Hallelujah, verse 6, points forward to something that is so incredible. I hope you're ready for it. It's the coming wedding of the Lamb. Hallelujah. So verse 7, we get into the marriage supper of the Lamb, you guys. This is a summit of revelation. This is something that just should cause streamers to come from heaven. It's something that should cause our hearts to jump. 
just as the bride comes down on her wedding day and everyone stands to look, that ought to be happening in our hearts right now. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Hallelujah. Let us be glad. Let us give greetings and exultation. Let us give him praise for there is a wedding celebration like you've never been to before. This is the long-awaited day, my friends. As Spurgeon says, heaven is always heaven and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowings. And on that day when the springtide of infinite oceans of joy shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of all glorified spirits. We do not know yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable. But when, when, when we're here on this day, we're going to be shouting and cheering and hooting and hollering and jumping and slapping each other on the back and maybe doing a little bit of this. Hallelujah. It's the wedding day. And the wife, his wife, has made herself ready. Revelation has been called a tale of two cities. Is a far, far better thing than a... Okay. But it's also been called a tale of two women. The woman of chapter 17 and 18, the harlot. The woman who rides the beast. And the woman of chapter 19, the bride of Christ. Here we see what's called a marriage that's been made in heaven. 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul the Apostle says, I am jealous for you, church, with the godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you. You are engaged through my ministry to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This is part of the ministry of the word of God. It's a ministry of pastors and shepherds that they preach the gospel to their people and they're able to, through the gospel and people being saved, there's engagement and betrothal happening between the son and the bride. You're the bride. Deal with it, men. The daughters get to be called sons so often in scripture. They dealt so well with it. And now we have a picture that can only be likened to the intimacy of marriage to where Jesus says, I love you this much. You're like my bride. That's how much I love you. In Ephesians chapter 5, 22, we would be amiss to not read 22 through 33 together. Where it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And if you're wondering what all that's about, you can get on our teaching series. You can go back a couple years where we did the gospel family series. We pulled this text apart. But what we see here is just as a husband has a leadership role with his wonderful wife, so too does Jesus have that role among his church, his bride. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in whatever they feel like. In everything. Ah, but husbands, you've got a tall order as well. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved his bride, the church, and gave himself for her, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, a bride, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it. Just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I'm actually speaking about Christ 
and the church. You see how that picture of marriage is a picture of the intimate love submission relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, not the building, but the people, all of those that have been redeemed by his blood throughout history are the church, the bride of Christ. And here we see that that bride has made herself ready. Through sanctification by the word of God and the spirit, she has made herself ready. This is the only time in Revelation where we see the saints as described as making themselves ready, doing something themselves, working, preparing themselves as a bride for their groom's coming. So how do we prepare ourselves to get ready for that day? The book of Revelation has the answer as Jesus is speaking toward the churches in chapters 2 and 3. That the bride prepares herself by remaining faithful to Jesus Christ in a fallen and evil world. The bride prepares herself by enduring hardship in the midst of suffering. The bride prepares herself by trusting in God in the face of martyrdom. The bride prepares herself by obeying God to take the gospel to all tribes, all languages, all peoples, and all nations. And so we have this incredible picture of the gospel in marriage, in purity, in chastity, in engagement, (coughs) in betrothal. And in verse 8 it says, And to this bride was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen are the righteous acts of the saint. And he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. You know, it's in this picture, it's in this, uh, it's in this story of the scripture of marriage that we find the gospel and any one of us that is married today can find this gospel proclamation within your own relationship. That God called you from before the foundations of the world to be married to him. And I just want to share a little from my own life. This is Mrs. King's first grade class, 1988 through 1989. You'll notice on the right-hand side, on the far right, a really handsome buck named Rory Rogers. And you'll notice three people over to the left, Lindsay Peterson. I don't know if you know who that is. That's my wife. My wife would pursue me relentlessly from day one. (laughs) Bottom right, Lindsay Peterson, just above her, a nice toothless grin staring right back at you. From before the foundations of the world, we have been calling to be... Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Got a little gross there for a minute, huh, Casey? From before the foundations of the world, we were called to be married to Jesus. From our youth, from our childhood, he has been beckoning you to be one with him, to let him love you, and to respond to his love, reciprocate his love with submission to all that is in his holy will. It has been granted by the Lord. It's God's sovereignty That he has prepared a way for us to be clothed in white. Shine bright, splendid garments are the righteous acts of the saints. That he is the one sovereignly who prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. We are told that we ought to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Ah, But the very next verse says, oh, but it is he who wills and works within you to do just that. 
And so even where you're at today, no matter what grime you come in with, you can come before the cleansing flow of Jesus as his bride and let him wash you whiter than any. Oh, my goodness. I loved my wife's wedding dress. She had this wedding dress that just had these beads on it, like a bead pattern. It was, I didn't know like what wedding dresses were like, really. I never got an up close look. And just this bead pattern that she had. She had these really special sparkly shoes on, just shining, glimmering. And that's literally the language that we have in Revelation here. Bright, splendid, sparkling, shimmering, white works that God has prepared for us to walk in. Even today, men and women alike, we can walk in the righteous, good acts of God. And prepare ourselves for our wedding with him. We just read that blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper, to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Many are called, few are chosen, the scripture says. It's a bit of an oxymoron to our finite brains. But that you Christians, you can say, I have been called. And you non-Christians here to say, I would say God is calling you. To put off the garments of filthiness. Though your sins are scarlet, I will clothe you in garments of white, the book of Isaiah says. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, it's interesting that the Jewish marriage included a number of steps. The first step was betrothal. That was the marriage covenant. That was the engagement. And it involved the the groom or the prospective groom traveling to his father's house, to the home of the prospective bride, and paying a dowry to that father, paying a purchase price, and thus establishing the marriage covenant. Many of you men did this. I remember so nervous driving from Corvallis down to Klamath Falls for a surprise visit to hang out. With Lindsay's dad, what in the world could he ever want? He ended up taking me out to lunch to the same restaurant he proposed to his future in-laws to, in a sense, pay the dowry for uh, Susan, my mother-in-law. We went to the same restaurant, and I had that permission, and thus began the process of betrothal and engagement as I would propose to Lindsay within the week or the next two weeks. The father of the groom would make the arrangement for the marriage and pay that bride price. Now, the timing of the arrangement was varied. Sometimes it occurs when people in the Jewish culture were just little children, sometimes when they were full-on adults, but they were as good as married at this point. Just as Joseph and Mary, Jesus's mom and dad, uh, they were betrothed, and Joseph thought maybe he should put her away because she was with child. And we know that our purchase price in our marriage was with the very precious blood of Jesus. It's during that next period that a home will be prepared. The groom would return to his father's house. He would be separate from his fiance for about 12 months. And he would prepare a home. Just as Jesus says in John chapter 14 verses 2 and 3. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And then once he's preparing that place, he comes back at an hour that's a total surprise. Nobody knows when he's going to come back. Everybody's waiting on pins and needles. It could be any day that this groom comes back. It's the same in our story with Jesus. We are waiting for him to come back as he's been away for oh so long Preparing a place for us. Hudson Taylor said, since he may come any day, it is well to be ready every day. We're going to see a parable that illustrates that in just a little bit. Prior to uh, the groom leaving to fetch the bride, he has to have a place ready. And the father is typically the only one who says, it's ready. Now, son, go and fetch the bride. And that brings us to the third point. The bride is fetched. The groom comes for the bride at a time that is known only by the father. It's not known at all by the bride. And that makes it all the more exciting. When is he going to be here? Many of you ladies know that anticipation. 
As Matthew 24, 36 says, But on that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Only the Lord knows when he's going to come back and get us and take him to the next step in the Jewish ceremony, which is the cleansing and the invitations. It's the actual ceremony, the wedding ceremony, which few have been invited to. Prior to the wedding ceremony, the bride goes through a ritual immersion and cleansing, and she's given these white robes. This is what we know in Christian theology as the Bema Seat Judgment. It's a time where we are given the rewards for the things that we have done in this life for the glory of God and for the fame of his name throughout the world. Jesus speaks all the time throughout the scriptures, including revelation of robes of righteousness, crowns of gold, and rewards that are with him to those that are faithful to him. It is the bride being arrayed before the actual wedding. This consummation happens next. His return with her to the groom's father's house to consummate the marriage and to celebrate the wedding feast for the next seven days, which we understand in a futuristic understanding of Revelation to be the seven-year tribulation period, seven days of being with our groom before the supper that happens afterwards. That's the next step, the marriage feast. We've been with our groom for seven years, and now we are on our way to the feast. All right? This is actually my wedding. We're on our way in my uncle's Corvette to go and eat. Of course, there were only like two carrots and a piece of broccoli left for me by the time I got there. But neither here nor there, you know who you are for eating all the mini meatballs. Okay. Thanks for ruining a Jewish wedding for me. It's cool. Okay. All right? During the consummation... Uh, the return with the bride to the groom's father's house. There's a consummation of the marriage. There's a seven-day celebration period during which the bride remains closeted in her bridal chamber before she comes out at the end of the seven-year or seven-day period for what is the marriage feast, or we know it as the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage feast is one of the last things to happen and can last for as many as seven days. Many more people will be invited at this point to celebrate just the feast. They were not at the ceremony. It's kind of reverse for us. Like, come to the wedding. We don't have enough meatballs for you. Okay? It's the opposite in the Jewish wedding celebration. In the marriage of the Lamb, all four of these steps of the Jewish wedding are clearly displayed. We read about this in Matthew chapter 22, verses 2 and through, four, uh, through 14, Matthew 25, 1 through 13, Luke chapter 12, 35 through 40. All of these great pictures of the bride waiting in anticipation for the groom to come and fetch her. And that we ought to always watch and always be ready. You guys, this betrothal is such an exciting event. That there's these alleluias leading up to it. There's one specific alleluia just for it. And there's this statement that says, blessed are those who are invited to this wedding feast. And interesting, I never thought of this, but in my studying this time teaching through Revelation, the commentaries that I read say that those invited to the wedding feast are the Old Testament saints that believed in the Messiah Before Messiah came, they're in heaven in the presence of the Lord, but they're not the church from the church age. It's also those who are part of the tribulation period who were saved and brought out, the tribulation saints. They're not the church from the church age. They're not this New Testament period that we know of from the New Testament, but they are so excited and blessed and happy to be there For this day in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And John is so overwhelmed by all of this in verse 10. I fell down at his feet to worship the angel that showed me these things. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
So John is just so overwhelmed. The angel's been showing him these things. He doesn't know what to do. He falls down at this amazing creature and begins worshiping it. Now, everyone in heaven sort of remembers what happened a couple thousand years ago with a certain angel named Lucifer that desired to be worshipped. No doubt this angel remembers that whole debacle and doesn't want to be caught in heaven having anybody worship him. And you know how it goes. Like, what are you doing? Get Oh, no, Jesus just thought, no, no, I wasn't. No, it's just a, oh, get up. I'm just a fellow servant. Funny thing is that we see this later on. It's going to happen just in a couple chapters when John sees the new Jerusalem. And he does the same thing to an angel. This is Cornelius did to Peter in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius met Peter and was hearing the gospel from Peter. And Peter says, get up. I'm just a fellow servant. Worship God. What humility it takes to be a mirror that reflects the glory of God and puts it back where it rightfully belongs. Worship God. God is what it says there. And wrapping up here, we have the worship team come up. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Wonderful statement here by this angel wanting to give God the glory. And as we talk about prophecy, if you talk about New Testament prophecy and the gifts, if you talk about Old Testament prophecy, at the end of the day, what is prophecy? It is declaring the story of, of Jesus. Jesus tells us in Luke 24, 27, that if you were to read from Moses and go through all the prophets, Jesus did this to his disciples. He expounded to them all the things concerning himself. Genesis through Malachi. It's all about Jesus. Matthew through revelation, all about Jesus book of revelation. It's not about tribulation, bugs, and demons, and antichrists, and beasts, and harlots, and blah, 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 blah. like, you'll drown in all of that. Just go away, like, oh, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus winning and conquering his foes, and he shall reign. He will win, and he will rule. Albert Moeller is a, a wonderful man of God, former pastor, uh, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can listen to his podcast. Uh, but he writes a book called He Is Not Silent. And he writes, every single text of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of all, and therefore he is the Lord of the Scriptures too. From Moses to the prophets, he's the focus of every single word in the Bible. Every verse of Scripture finds its fulfillment in him. And every story in the Bible ends with him. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And it's 2 till 12. Let's stand together. Hallelujah.